the Anesthesia Podcast. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, my name is Ed Mariano. I'm based at Stanford in California, and I'm an editor of Anesthesia. I'm very excited to meet the authors of the latest COVID surge research paper, SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Venous Thromboembolism After Surgery, Drs. Lee, CMOS, and Pata. This article was published online in Anesthesia a day ago and has already made the news worldwide. The first article by the COVID Search Collaborative is notable for holding the Guinness World Record for the most authors on a paper. I'm very honored to meet you, Drs. Lee, Simoes, and Pata. Um, and I'll hand over now to Dr. Lee for a quick introduction. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I'm Elizabeth Lee. I'm one of the uh, doctoral research fellows and uh, at the central team here in Birmingham as part of the COVID Search project. So uh, this paper. Um, is on venous thromboembolism in surgical patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, just a bit of background, um, VTEs and PEs in particular have been described as the number one preventable cause for, of, of death for hospitalized patients. And even at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, reports were coming out of COVID patients having risks and rates of VTE at 30%. And the especially sick ones in ITU were reported at around 37, 40%. So it was something that was very concerning for um, the clinical world as a whole. Patients who are undergoing surgery are already at higher risk of VTE due to immobility, due to the physiological insult of a surgical procedure. But at the same time, we have to balance this with the risk of bleeding always in all of our patients. And so the aim of this study was to define the incidence of VTE in patients undergoing surgery during the COVID-19 pandemic, and also identify which features were associated with the increased risk of VTE. And our primary outcome was VTE, which was DVTs and PEs within 30 days. And the Global Surge COVID Weeks uh, study, which this analysis is based on, is an international prospective cohort study. It was done on both SARS-CoV-2 positive and negative patients during a one-week data collection period of all consecutive patients within a single department uh, in October of 2020. And all types of surgical specialties were involved. Um, over 128,000 patients were involved across 115 countries. So um, it really has been a, an incredible achievement and really reflects um, how much hard work and man hours was put in by all of our collaborators. So a massive thank you. So what we did was we wanted to look at the patients with no previous diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2, but also separate the ones who did have a diagnosis into those with a periop diagnosis, um, a recent diagnosis of one to six weeks before surgery, or a previous one of over seven weeks or an inclusive before surgery. And what we found was that the unadjusted rate showed that definitely having a SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis increased the risk of VTE at least twice as much above those who'd never had a diagnosis. And those with a perioperative diagnosis were found to have four times as high um, risk in unadjusted analysis. Um, when we put this in adjusted analysis, so in other words, we took factors that are known to cause post-operative complications, as well as risk factors for VTE, such as smoking and um, uh, 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 sort of pneumonia, we found that there still is an increased risk, a significant association with um, previous and perioperative SARS infection. 
What we also found was the risk of mortality after adjusted analysis was um, over five times as high in patients with post-operative VTE. And uh, there is also a positive association uh, with post-operative mortality in those who've had SARS diagnosis in the perioperative period and the recent uh, period between one to six weeks. Uh, we also looked at the patients with or without ongoing symptoms as well. And we found that those uh, with ongoing symptoms had a VTE rate overall of 4.6%. But those who did have a SARS infection, but which resolved or were always in asymptomatic, had a VTE rate of 0.8%. And when we drilled down further and looked at when the diagnosis was in relation to the surgery, it was consistently always higher in those who still had ongoing symptoms. So these patients were at higher risk of VTE. So the take home messages are that uh, VTE is independently associated with SARS-CoV-2 infection. It has also been shown to be associated with pneumonia as well, postoperative pneumonia. And um, we should consider increasing uh, prophylaxis for high-risk patients or at least monitoring very, very closely. And of course, taking account their bleeding risk as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. I mean, I think we can tell 115 countries, it's a massive undertaking. And so yeah, the, the implications of the study really can be um, yeah, spread worldwide. Um, yeah, I think I'll direct this first question to, to Dr. Simois. Um, yeah, as part of one of the main investigators of this particular study and, and knowing what the findings are now, you know, how, how do you view the main findings of the paper? You know, what, what were your take home messages? Thank you, Ed. Um, it's really it's really good to be discussing with this with you know not only surgeons but anesthetists as well because I think the messages from this paper are really very much about the perioperative care. Um, so I think one of the main things as a surgical trainee, if I have a patient um, who I'm taking to theatre which has a current diagnosis of a very recent um, diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2, I know that this patient is at huge risk of VTE compared to what the baseline risk is. So I really need to plan the perioperative care to have that into consideration. The other thing is if the patient has a SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis maybe a few weeks ago, but I do need to bring them into elective surgeries for let's say cancer surgery, um, I know that still if the, if the SARS-CoV-2 infection was around six weeks ago, there is still increased risk. So we, should, we, we really need to have that into consideration when we discuss strategies for these patients. Um, other than that, um, I think it's very important to notice what Lizzie said in the, one of the last slides, that patients with symptoms always have higher risk of VTE. So Symptomatic, symptomatic infection and surgery are a combination that always increases risk, no matter how long the, uh, ago the SARS-CoV-2 infection was. So those would be my main take-home messages from this paper that I would kind of um, take to my clinical practice and discuss with my colleagues to manage my patients differently. Thank you so much. And I think as much as so we, we look at this study and we look at the, yeah, the prior COVID search collaborative study and we look at these numbers and think, wow, this is just unbelievable. Like how much effort has gone into uh, collecting these data and analyzing these data for publication. There are, there's no such thing as a perfect study as we all know. Um, 
Dr. Pada, uh, what were some of the things that you thought or you considered as the main limitations of this particular project? And what were some things that yeah, came up even in uh, the process of investigating and preparing this manuscript that really made you think, um, yeah, these are some things that we need to point out you know, to the readers of the article to make sure that they put these findings in context? Uh, thank you, Dr. Mariano. Uh, the, uh, the COVID, the global SARS COVID SARS week study, which this is a plan, sub analysis, was not specifically designed to collect detailed data on VT prophylaxis. VT prophylaxis was assumed to vary hugely across the world, and the patients were assumed to receive the standard care of prophylaxis according with the local and national guidelines. But when the study started in October 2020, uh, there was already known the association between SARS-CoV-2 infection and an increased risk or VTE, so it's possible that some of these patients may have received not, not the standard of care, but some modification of their treatment to better protect them during the pandemic. And I think that's very true, as we've all learned in the last year and a half, is that the knowledge about this disease you know, continues to evolve. And you know, especially earlier in the pandemic, uh, even at the time of the collection of these data in October, uh, there were still so many so many questions that had been unanswered. And so our, our care continued to change um, based on uh, the release of new data, some of which you know, were, were uh, published pre-print. Um, yeah, I'll direct the next question to Dr. Lee. Thank you so much again for the great introduction to the study and overview. Um, some of our followers and readers yeah, may, may look at this, uh, this paper as they go through the, the details, and, and they may suggest that there are unmeasured confounders, you know, which, which may have influenced the outcome, you know, which was a VTE in uh, these patients. Do you think that there were any potential unmeasured confounders? Um, and if so, what were they? And, and how would you try to account for this, um, either in future studies yeah, related to uh, the COVID Search Collaborative or even, or even other studies uh, unrelated to the collaborative? So uh, residual confounders is always a possibility when it comes to any type of study, in fact. And um, VTE is a, um, is a phenomenon, uh, is a condition that we actually know quite a lot about the risks, um, things like obesity and um, uh, smoking and surgery and immobility. So these things we try to incorporate as much as possible, as well as um, uh, we incorporated uh, data points that included um, proxies for a more or severe disease course post-operatively if they did get SARS-CoV-2. So we based a lot of the factors we used to adjust this on our previous data that demonstrated the best, um, the, the highest level of association. So we believe we adjusted for as much as we possibly can. Um, as mentioned by Dr. Pata, um, one thing to note is that because we, many patients may already have had increased um, uh, prophylactic doses or uh, fairly augmented treatment, perhaps is the way to say it, um, because of the known VTE risk, it's possible that they were already being somewhat treated and that, um, if anything, this study may be underreported um, when it comes to that. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, I'll, I'll put this back to Dr. Simoes. And I think that it's it's very clear that this topic yeah, has global attention. And we've seen this in all the news outlets that have been covering the article just in the last day since it's been released. 
by, by anesthesia online. Um, and I think it's important that we think about perspectives other than uh, the physician or clinician's perspective. And so I think rightfully, um, the lay press, you know, which addresses everyone, um, you know, what really brings in the, the patient perspective. So um, if you were to uh, take the lens um, of a researcher away, you know, what do you what do you think the main implications are for more of the global population? You know, our patients, um, they are clinician colleagues, of course, you know, future scientists who may be interested in this topic. Definitely. And um, I think this goes way beyond definitely the interest of a surgeon or a clinician. And, and from a patient perspective, if, if that's what we want to focus on, I think patients need and probably across the whole pandemic, patients became more aware of how evidence can empower them to advocate for a better care for themselves and their families. So it's really good that we have managed to sort of get this out to the lay population so everyone can be um, at least aware that surgery and SARS-CoV-2 does, does increase the risk of clots. And having, you know, um, if patients are empowered by that sort of uh, reliable information coming from data, um, I think the next thing that we need to discuss is how much does this um, add on top of their usual risk? So obviously surgical patients, as we all know, and usually people know that from a common sense um, are at risk of clots because of the surgical aggression, because they might uh, not move as much after surgery, they might spend a few days in hospital, then go go home and still be, you know, quite not very mobile in the in the in the last few days or weeks. So all of that kind of increases the risk um, of of this VTE events, right? And um, so I think patients need to understand that multiple things add on. To, the, to that sort of risk, and they need to be empowered by this to discuss with their surgeons what should be done, um, what preventive measure, measures can be in place, and what are the, risk of the, the risks of those as well. Because if, we're, if we are exploring the possibility of um, implementing VT, extended VTE prophylaxis strategies for these patients, what are the risks of those? Because obviously there is a bleeding risk associated with that, that we don't quite know what the perfect balance is. So I think those things from a patient perspective um, are to inform consent and to be aware of the risks of not only the disease, but also the strategies to fight against the disease, probably. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that um, the, the findings of this paper really should cause better, um, hopefully inspire people to have better communication in the operating room. And uh, one of my one of my good surgeon colleagues and friends, uh, Dr. Mary Brindle, who's at the University of Alberta, uh, we worked together on a modification of the WHO surgical safety checklist in the time of COVID. And I think that yeah, this would be a very important element to discuss, especially when doing that safety check you know, before uh, going to surgery. I think that anyone in the room, the nurses, you know, the surgeons, you know, the anesthetists you know, who are caring for these patients, if you have a history of uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, even especially perioperative symptoms, then, then this discussion about VT prophylaxis should take place. And I think that that's very important. And hopefully everyone uh, gets that message from this article. Um, when we look at uh, big data studies, and I'll, I'll pose this question to Dr. Pata, um, big data studies, you often have a lot of associations. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, you cannot uh, prove causation. And so when you're trying to draw conclusions, um, it has to make sense. Yeah, and, and so when they look at these findings, yeah, we see 
this increased um, you know, increased odds of having VTE. Um, it seems to make sense, yeah, you know, but but why? And so, Dr. Potter, could you go through perhaps you know, some of the potential mechanisms for this increased rate of VTE in patients um, who have a perioperative in recent SARS-CoV-2? Thank you for your question. Uh, the uh, surgical week study was an observational was study. Then was not uh, um, was not designed to investigate the exact physiological pathways behind this association. But we know that there are several mechanisms that will fall in line with uh, well-known factor associated with an increased risk of VTE. For example, the systematic, uh, the global systemic uh, inflammatory response can be associated both with surgery and SARS-CoV-2 infection. The dehydration, uh, as well as the altered coagulation and reduced blood flow after surgery. And we also know that uh, pulmonary complications are strongly associated with VTE. And oh, we don't know exactly which of these mechanisms is major, but we know that uh, some of these may act synergically to increase uh, uh, the uh, damage and to increase the risk of VTE, such as the increased immobility of this patient, even in a young and healthy people. And these will be the topics of future research to investigate better uh, this uh, uh, potential mechanism implied in the association. Thank you, Dr. Pada. Um, I think if, um, if I'm looking at you know, the, some of the details of the study, and I think uh, I'll, I'll pose this question to Dr. Lee, um, the, there, you did not find um, the same risk between patients who had elective surgery and, and you know, who had emergency surgery. Um, yeah. Can you explain you know, why you found this differential risk? Yeah, of course. So um, overall, for example, uh, let's take elective and emergency surgery. Emergency surgical patients did overall have a high risk of VTE, as we would somewhat expect. But um, in the SARS-CoV-2 positive and negative. But um, when it comes to elective surgical patients, the difference between those with and without SARS was much greater. So not having SARS-CoV-2 if you're having elective surgery versus having SARS-CoV-2 now or previously was a much bigger difference in um, VTE risk. And uh, we, we postulate that this is most likely because patients having emergency surgery are already under a higher level of physiological stress. They may already have higher levels of uh, VTE prophylaxis, such as Floatron boots or some extra measures. So when they you add the SARS-CoV-2 risk on top, it's not as big comparatively as compared to, say, for example, a relatively young and healthy and physiologically stable patient having a right hemicolectomy who um, may be totally asymptomatic, but that increased risk is greater. So um, as my colleague uh, Joanna uh, said earlier, the, the very important thing is to understand this increased risk so that we can speak to patients and um, be able to inform them of exactly what this means. So if they undergo surgery now, even if they had asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2, it increases their risk after they come out of the procedure afterwards. And, um, uh, and we suspect that this may be what is going on um, underneath. And also um, major surgery compared to uh, minor surgery as well. We think that this is fairly straightforward and it's just that major surgery definitely leads to more immobility, more physiological stress and a high risk. 
Thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, so I guess the, the, one of the important take-home points, I think, for all of our colleagues, you know, all of our you know, patients worldwide is, um, what do we do about this? So, um, so how should patients undergoing surgery be anticoagulated? Um, is it different? Is it different if you're a patient who um, is having surgery who may have had uh, past recent perioperative SARS-CoV-2 versus a, a medical inpatient, someone who comes in to, who becomes hospitalized uh, without having had surgery? Um, and I ask uh, Dr. Simoes to address that. So I think the perfect strategy on how exactly to change practice across all surgical patients is still a matter for some more research, uh, Dr. Mariano. So I think um, trials are already tackling this question and um, to know exactly on by how much should we increase the milligrams of proxphylaxis for depending on the preoperative risk is, is still to be refined. But what I think we can take for our anticoagulation strategies for patients right now is probably to use this data to know that they are at increased risk and um, maybe discuss, discuss on a, a bespoke basis for each patient, understanding what is the individual level of risk and uh, optimizing strategies. So let's say, um, what Lizzie was giving some examples of uh, patients coming for elective surgery who are not on anticoagulation before. They are, you know, pretty stable ASA two, let's say. Um, so a pretty regular operation with a, with a with a lower risk. If they do have um, uh, a, a recent SARS-CoV two infection, um, probably the risk of bleeding for that patient if the, the surgery goes like in a straightforward manner is not very high. So maybe for that, that patient, it, the risk of extending the prophylaxis is not very high. So maybe that would be a case where we could do it. Um, obviously, we're always discussing that with the patient because obviously this is not a streamlined guideline that is already published and very well fundamented. So uh, we should always discuss that, that with patients. Um, but for instance, for a patient already on some um, aspirin or even anticoagulation um, medication who has who is undergoing a big uh, emergency abdominal surgery, let's say, the risks for the, that patient of increasing um, the VTE risk are higher, but also the risks of bleeding because of prophylaxis are, are also higher. So maybe um, fine-tuning, you know, monitoring is always the... The, the best way to kind of tackle the the day-to-day the, the -day approach to these patients, but maybe those risks and benefits need to actually be um, talked through every day and on an individual basis. I think that that's where we can stand on top of this data and say, you know, that's what we can do for now, but definitely more research is needed. And uh, there is a lot of not only clinical, but maybe lab, lab research as well um, to, to tackle these issues in future studies. Thank you. Uh, I definitely, I've heard of personalized medicine, but I think I like bespoke medicine much, much better. So I think I'll start using that. <laughs> Dr. Pada, um, I think that we we all when we read these articles we do research you know we oftentimes in the halls of academia we uh, we agree on these findings and their importance and um, yeah but sometimes yeah, it, we all have this realization that, that it feels like an echo chamber so yeah how how do we do a better job of increasing awareness of these risks how do we make them real for people yeah how do you plan to disseminate to to, to make this uh, implemented in terms of surveillance yeah for for all of our colleagues worldwide 
worldwide for the betterment of patient care. Well, papers such, such as these uh, and uh, widespread dissemination and education help with awareness to better understand this disease. For the first time, we are uh, uh, collecting baseline data that can help further research, but also can also uh, help patients to be aware of the potential problem related to surgery after SARS-CoV-2 infection. We will develop an online learning problem and will appeal to national, international organization to spread the result of the research. In the current practice, we cannot increase the screening of patients for VTE in the normal practice because we know that asymptomatic VTEs are, no, are in many cases not uh, clinical significant that this could lead to an overtreatment, but uh, be aware of the problem may help to the vigilance by staff during the in-stay patient and can help also the caregiver after the discharge to act promptly when some mild symptom of VTE are in place. And this is, a, I think, that one of the main goals of this research is to increase the awareness of doctors, but also patients and caregivers to help to recognize promptly also mild symptoms of VTE and to increase, uh, to reduce the risk of mortality associated with a, a later intervention for a VTE. Thank you. Um, if um, you know, we look at these uh, large um, you know, cohort studies and we say, well, you know, this is not a randomized clinical trial. So yeah, if we consider randomized clinical trials as the, the gold standard yeah, for, um, yeah, for clinical research evidence, um, yeah, Dr. Lee, what, what, would, what, would a, what would a prospective study look like yeah, if you were to embark on such a study to try to demonstrate uh, BTE risk perioperatively with patients with SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, that's a great question because um, we we truly do not know which regiment's the best. So there's not actually a sort of like ethical dilemma because it, we don't know which patients will do better or worse. And RCTs are the best way to really um, control that intervention that, so that we really do know that it's that that is affecting the, res, uh, the outcomes because VTE is extremely multifaceted. There are numerous different things that go into a person's risk and um the uh, and it would be really good to open a very large scale trial that can recruit a, a very wide range of patients not only benign surgery but um malignant uh, a surgery for cancer of course because we know that that increases risk but um also demographics that is highly representative of the entire range of patients so that we can really um, make a good assessment of what might be good because i suspect that any sort of subgroup analysis of that will give us the fidelity and the fine detail to make more definitive recommendations. Okay, and um, for Dr. Simois and Pata, um, yeah, as, as we talk about the future of, of bespoke medicine and tailoring our VTE prophylaxis yeah, for, for surgical patients, um, how can you see medicine advancing? How do you see new emerging technology yeah, that may help aid in the care of these patients yeah, going forward? So I think that, um, and Francesco can share his uh, opinions and, and experience of what could be used in, in hospitals in Italy. Um, I, I think there is a role for um, 
streamline, streamlining processes based on this data, identify risk factors that can be put together in um, risk as assessment tools, um, and routine preoperative risk scoring, not only for other complications, but specifically for VTE, especially in patients that we know that had um, a, a recent SARS-CoV-2 infection or who had surgery recently and have um, a post-operative SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that, that would be my take on how to take this forward in terms of practical tools that we can use. Francesco, over to you. Yes, I, I agree with Joanna. We are moving towards a more tailored approach to the SARS-CoV-2 patient and the surgical patient as we acquire more information on the disease. I think that uh, machine learning and advanced data science may help in the future to move towards a more tailored approach and uh, to construct well-done algorithms because uh, we know that uh, every single surgical patient uh, takes a lot of risk factor. We do not completely the disease up to now, the SARS-CoV-2. We need to acquire more data, but when we will acquire more solid data, we will move towards a better approach to well-construct algorithm for a tailored approach. Every patient needs a tailored treatment. And sorry, can I also just- Yes, please, Dr. Lee. Sorry, just to add, um, as more patients get SARS-CoV-2, this group of patients who previously had it is growing. So we are trying to capture, sorry, we're trying to catch up on the surgeries that we have fallen behind and the backlog after the various lockdowns, the pandemic as a whole, which we're still not over. But this group, oh, this cohort is growing. So this isn't a problem that's going to go away and we still do need to address this as well. And um, we're just getting slowly uh, towards that. Yeah, I would fully agree. And actually, if, uh, if I could put this as the last question, uh, would my surgical colleagues agree with me that perhaps we need a, a better term uh, than elective surgery, especially as the pandemic continues to rage on? Um, yeah, we locally at our hospital, we've started to use scheduled and unscheduled surgery um, because, as you know, there's so many surgeries out there that are not elective. Uh, as in optional, um, but these are yeah, very these are important surgeries. Patients with cancer, patients with disability, um, yeah, whose surgeries are being delayed because of the ongoing pandemic. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it certainly is not that sort of binary kind of like uh, way to, to, to classify them. There are a range of, I guess, urgencies in many ways. And it also adjusts the way that we're willing, willing and also speak to our patients to um, uh, of the risk they're willing to take as well. So obviously, a absolute emergency we're willing to take a lot of risks if it's life-saving so yeah absolutely um it, it is very binary and it doesn't give enough fidelity in many ways yeah. well it just uh, highlights the importance of your of your work um, again I'm, I'm honored to be yeah, to be on this uh, a zoom call with all of you and uh, very excited to meet you and i want to remind all of our viewers and readers yeah, that the article SARS-CoV-2 infection and venous thromboembolism after surgery is available now from anesthesia. It's free to download. Um, please go ahead and visit the journal site. Um, you can also find links to the paper um, on the Anesthesia Journal uh, Twitter page. And uh, thank you all for joining us and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank, you. thank you all. The Anesthesia Podcast.